I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. To explore strange new worlds. To seek out new life and new civilizations. To boldly go where no man has gone before. Others lock up your sons. The fangirls are busting out all over. It's Fangirl Radio. Fangirl Radio. the fangirls on jackalope radio hey everybody and welcome to the latest and greatest episode of the fangirl radio show i'm your host jessica dwyer and this week's episode the boys have kind of taken over because i have my own sort of jessica's angels if you will mr eric smith hello and mr carl duty what's up fangirl nation it is Good to be back. Finally done with therapy that I was required by the state for seeing Fantastic Four. <laughs> oh, God. I, he I'm can't so sorry. Away. I, I think there's not enough bleach in the world. Uh, that's okay. I'm in a good place now. I accept the fact that the film exists and it's out there. And I am at peace with the one in me who is not the one in the Fantastic Four. That make you one, two, three, or four. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to my happy place. I'm going to my happy place. It's funny he brings that up because I just got an email about a press release about it coming out on Blu-ray. <laughs> so quickly. And <laughs> desperate, yeah, desperate, like desperate to make their money back in some fashion. And I, Oh, they're, they're never, never making the money back nah, on that one. Nah, nah. Not going to happen. It's going to end up like in a landfill, kind of like the the Atari E.T. game, and they're going to try and bury it. And then like 50 years from now, someone's going to go, oh, what's this? And then they're going to dig it up, and then it's going to be like in the ether of the world again. And yeah. Isn't that one of the signs of the apocalypse? I think so. I think they can they can blame that, that movie <laughs> for one of them. It's probably this Pestilence. Act- I think it's Pestilence. This, this actually is the Fantastic Four horsemen of the apocalypse <laughs> that's a good one i uh I, I appreciate that humor um so this week uh our special guest that will be coming up at uh later in the show i'm very excited about and that is um barbara crampton and her director for we are still here uh which was a great flick and if you haven't seen it it is a wonderful wonderful movie it just came out this week on dvd and blu-ray um but barbara crampton and ted gagan and it's interesting because i had to verify how you said his last name and the way he he said it was hilarious he says think of a gay gun or it rhymes with reagan and so yeah ted Ted Gagan and Barbara Crampton from We Are Still Here. A uh, very creepy little ghost flick. So you should definitely check it out. And it co-stars Lisa Marie 
um, who uh, you may remember from Sleepy Hollow and Guys. Nah. Tim Burton. Yes, yes, Tim Burton. <laughs> You'll remember her for Tim Burton. God. No, she was also one of the great aliens in Mars Attacks, and she was also one of the um, female apes in Planet of the Apes. But she is great in this, and she is not wearing any makeup. So you know, you can recognize her. She doesn't look weird. She actually um, is great in this, as is uh, Larry Fessenden, who is also in it, and Monty Markham, who plays a really creepy man in that movie so it's a fun flick and it was a great interview to hear about and uh some interesting things went on they a lot of people were freezing to death because they filmed it in the middle of winter and i think they were actually in new england and it was very very cold so uh we will be getting to the hat New England doesn't know what cold is. There's I live no in cold in New England. <laughs> I live in Buffalo. We know what cold is. Oh, God. Here we go with the East Coast. I'm my state's colder thing. Ugh. Ugh. Um, so before we get to that, though, we have a Week in Geek to get through. Carl's got some awesome comic books to go over. And... Um, First off, though, we have to talk about TV because we had some great shows, one of which returned this week, and I'm very excited about. Um, there were some finales that you can watch my video review on, but uh, before you watch that, let's talk about iZombie coming back, which I have missed this show so much, and I know Eric is a fan as well. I am. So what did you think of how this played out and the new, the new job for Blaine that he has taken? As always, Blaine is just fantastic. He's so gloriously sleazy. <laughs> he is. He is. Um, I, I was a little disappointed in the premiere. Um, I thought Blaine was the best part. And I know they had a lot of ground to cover from last season. Uh, but I, the mystery, I thought, was weak. Um, but It was sad. Because I, 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 I would, if someone had done that with my dog, I would have killed them too. I'm just going to say. <laughs> that was, that, all he, all oh, he did was kidnap the dog. But, but. You know, you heard the thing about the squirrels. I See, the thing is, I, I kind of have to feel sad about the victim that she's trying to figure out the um, how it played out. But as they stated, this this person was, an, it was a jerk on yes. so many levels. I didn't care. I'm like, no, don't don't take the guy to jail for his for this. This guy was scum. But um, I did like um, I did like the angle they're going with. Um, with Marsh with uh, Major, I think that's an interesting thing uh, how they're playing that out. And I wonder if do you think um, her best friend's gone from the show completely? Um, you know, I was wondering about that at the end of last season, and yeah, I don't know. I, I, I mean, obviously, they threw in the new roommate angle. Yeah, totally. Uh, so I would love to see Peyton come back. Well, but, I, it was interesting to me how much Robbie didn't act like he cared. You know, there wasn't really anything about Peyton really mentioned by him that he acted like 
he was missing her at all. Well, they they didn't date that long. Yeah, that's true. I Plus, guess. he works with the dead. I'm sure he's dead inside. <laughs> nice. Um, so he works with the dead, and he works with the dead. Uh, no, no. I did enjoy. Um, I did enjoy live once more. Being like, I, I liked how she, just some of the horrible things that came out of her mouth in this episode was hilarious. Yes, yeah, seeing the petite, pale, blonde chick acting like a cantankerous old racist man. Oh yeah, and and the interaction at the at the uh, precinct with uh, the the guy hitting on her that yeah. that was <laughs> awesome. Um, but I, I actually really like this. But once again, Blaine takes the show. I would watch a show just about Blaine being a, a scumbag. Not gonna He's a, a wonderful scumbag. He is. He is. And uh, um, David Anders, actually, I've been complaining about um, Once Upon a Time. And I kind of I, I watched the first episode and I just don't have any sort of interest because of how they're playing the, the show and they're doing the whole We've lost our memories for the how many seasons have they had? <laughs> now we're doing another season of memory loss. Um, but they may trick me back into coming back because they actually have said that um, Dr. Whale is going to be in an episode. And that means David Anders is coming back as Dr. Frankenstein. For those who don't know, that's who he plays in there. So he's a busy, dude. He is. And he's a good actor. And it's, apparently has to play with dead bodies on every show. Yeah, well, have you seen The Revenant? Uh, no, I have not. <gasps> what? Carl, have you seen The Revenant? Nope. Oh my god. So you two have homework. <laughs> you two have homework. You have to see this movie. I believe it's on Netflix streaming now, but it is an awesome, awesome zombie flick, which isn't your typical zombie. He's not even actually purely a zombie. And uh, David Anders is in it. And it is, it's almost like if you took Shaun of the Dead and put it in a blender with Boondock Saints and comedy. And that's, that's what you get in this, uh, in The Revenant. And it's so good. I actually interviewed him way back on this show when that came out. And it's an excellent movie, so you should totally check it out if you love David Anders and zombies. <laughs> Very much so. Uh, so Carl, I know, watched um, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but he had a new name for it, which is... Yes, <laughs> it's Agents of, wow, we really wish we could use mutants. <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't believe how quickly they resolved the issue of uh, Simmons. Yeah, I was kind of happy that they did that. It didn't seem like a storyline that really warranted getting dragged out over an entire season. I think with a storyline that happened of her getting sucked into the obelisk and it's it's unclear if she was actually transported to the Cree home world or where she was transported to. But I think it the show is better served by dealing with the fallout of that than spending a whole season trying to get her back. Right. I, I was worried that was what we were going to be stuck with. And I yeah. really didn't want that because that would get old really quickly. But I think with I loved Fitz uh, and his sort of they gave him his Emmy moment and the first yeah. episode for sure. Oh yeah. 
but I, I really enjoyed it. And I liked that they brought back, um, uh, now I'm looking at his name again. God, the <laughs> Asgardian, Peter McNichol. I don't know yeah. why I can't remember his name. But um, I also really liked how they brought in more of the Hydra angle. Yeah, they're kind of, they didn't explore it a lot in the first episode this season. Um, but we got a big reveal in this episode, which was a, a spoiler alert, Baron Von Strucker's son. Yeah. And Ward tracked him down to see what he kind of see what he was made of, to see if he is capable of reassembling Hydra. Cause Hydra is very splintered right now, still operating, but very splintered. Um, but this episode had the feel of, okay, let's deal with the Simmons thing. Let's get it out of the way so we can focus on like the secret warriors, focus on the inhumans and focus on kind of the rebuilding of Hydra. Yeah. And I actually like too how they utilize Daisy in this and, and she's the big, other big thing for me was James Hong playing May's dad. I, yes that was so great <laughs> as soon as he showed up on screen i was like dave david <laughs> lopan is that you it only makes sense that her dad would be david lopan <laughs> of course no i really like where the show is going so far this season um it seems to be very we want to hit the ground running we want to be um action oriented I like the character of Daisy much more this season so far. I like yeah. that she's over the insecurities of who she is. And granted, that's a journey that character needed to take to get to where she is now. But the journey last season probably lasted a little longer than it needed to. I think that, oh, as a lot of people can agree, that Shield start, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in its first season started off very slow. And it was getting better only by the smallest increments as each episode went on. But as soon as Captain America Winter Soldier hit and all those events spilled over in S.H.I.E.L.D., the show really picked up a lot of momentum. And I think in the second season, it kind of lost a little bit of that, that momentum, but didn't regress all the way. And I think they're they're kind of getting that back this season. They're hitting the ground strong two episodes in. Well, the other thing that I find interesting with this season is the parallels between Ward and, and Coulson. Because Ward is totally ruthless and determined on what he's doing, which is getting shield or getting Hydra back up to the levels it used to be and making it his baby. But Coulson has, I think become just as ruthless as Ward with the fact that he's just like, no, go kill him. I don't don't think it's a, um, a question of being ruthless. I think he's more determined and knows what needs to be done and is not as clouded as he was, especially in the last season. Well, like I th- him, him being a shield agent, he understands that there are some times when the clear path is just, okay, this guy's here and we have to take him out. So that's where I think his whole thing with Ward is he's done with like the emotional conflict that Ward provided in the second half of last season, and he just wants it resolved and done with. I, I, I think that I think that too, but I think also that he may make a bad choice with within the con within that. There's, I mean, um, May's May's ex husband even says, you know, tells Daisy, are you know, where is he at with this? Because it seems like 
we're he's losing you know that the light within him in a way and he's becoming more set and focused and not as emotional or maybe he's becoming, he's becoming more like nick fury exactly he is yeah. he's becoming nick fury 2.0 and so instead, that's, instead of an eye he's lost a hand yeah and that's probably a path that that character is okay with traveling because he of his affection for fury so it'll be interesting to see where it goes. It'll be interesting to see um, how they handle Inhumans. I think this will this is going to be a really fascinating experiment that Marvel's doing, kind of leading into the Inhumans movie, which is still a couple years off. So we're probably not going to see major Inhuman characters like Black Bolt or Medusa, um, but they're kind of like laying this framework for supremely obscure characters to be brought into their cinematic universe. I mean, obviously it's worked in the past guardians of the galaxy were obscure and that worked out. And man is, I wouldn't go as far as say it's obscure, but he was definitely a D list character and they showed that they can make it work with that. So dare you, sir. (laughs) There's a fight brewing. (laughs) Listen, I'm not saying that Ant-Man is not a quality character. I'm just saying if you're to make a power ranking of Marvel characters, he's not going to be very high on the list as far as public perception goes. Wow. That's, just, that's like a personal attack. I'm sorry, man. Listen, you're, all you can ever expect from me is cold, harsh truth. Well, as long as you don't badmouth Squirrel Girl, we're okay. All right, we won't talk about that. <laughs> Wow. Well, speaking of um, characters from the Marvel Universe, too, I wanted to make sure everyone was aware of this because this is um, it got reported out. I believe it was. uh, Yeah, it was today. It got reported out because a lot of people didn't know there is a Jessica Jones Netflix uh, pre-comic for free that you can go get on Comixology today. Uh, it's a digital comic, and it's like a precursor to the new series. And it was a—it's completely free. Just go on there and download it. And uh, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but it's a one-shot that uh, you can go get. And uh, they're kind of tying—they're getting ready to ramp up with that because they're showing all these little little tidbit snippet um, hmm. trailers where the like, teasers, the teasers. I'm like, I want my purple man. I was about to ask, do you want the purple man because you love the character purple man or you just want to see another doctor who acted? I I want all of it. because (laughs) He's he's a great choice. He is a great choice because I have seen Secret Smile and I know how sleazy (laughs) and creepy he can be. And he can be really good and creepy and sleazy and make you want to take a bath later after talking to him. Um, And I just, it's not, I I love the character too. I think Kilgrave is just, he's so awesomely bad and, and, and just stylish and pervy. And I, that's like three of my little check marks. Um, But yeah, so go to Comixology and you can go download your free Jessica Jones. Um, really quickly, I had to touch upon Gotham, which Carl, I know, watched. Have you watched the entire first season yet, or did you give up? I, I'm not giving up. We, we, we should tell the audience what we're doing. Okay. So, Carl, um, 
I, I've convinced Carl and Rachel also convinced Carl to keep watching the first season of Gotham because Carl is one of the biggest Batman fans around. And I had a hard time with Gotham through half the se- half the first season, as everyone knows that listens to this show. So I kept with it and I was very happy I did because the second half of the first season really got going and I've been really happy with this second season except for the last laugh which was the last episode they showed which was supposed to be the big Joker episode and um, but anyway Carl go ahead where are you at in Gotham season one I right now I believe I'm at your episode 12 or 13 I'm on the Red Hood episode ah okay so we're how far are you in it uh, I think I'm about halfway through the episode. Are you liking it? Give or take. Uh, <laughs> See, yeah, that... Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Okay. I don't completely hate this show. Okay. There are some things this show does right, but the problem is there are many more things this show does wrong. And for me, it's all about the premise that the show is presented on. Like, for me, Gotham would be an amazing show if they said... This is a what if world and the Waynes were never killed and Bruce never needed to become Batman. But how do these characters that we know in Gotham evolve in a world without Batman? But because they're selling the show as this is what Gotham was before Bruce became Batman is where it has many of its flaws. Right. Well, and it's really hard because they're kind of creating their own mythos for these characters too, as they're doing this. And I just, I, it's, it's, and you're actually on episode 17 if you're on the red hood. Okay. Yeah. 17. Um, so you've seen the scarecrow, which I loved. I love the scarecrow stuff they did with Julian Sands and his, and the scarecrow's son or this, well, the scarecrow is the son, but I love that whole setup. Uh, I love the guest stars in this series. And if if you're like a hardcore Batman fan who is a stickler, I can see where this is going to totally make you hard-pressed to stick with the show. It's not so much that I'm a stickler. I understand that when you transfer a story into another medium, there's going to be a slightly different take on it. My problem with the sh- my main problem with the show is overcrowding. Exactly. And but- Uh, And I mentioned to you, my wife pointed out the main problem with the show 20 minutes into the pilot episode when she simply looked over to me and said, why are all these characters here? You know, I think for me, um, uh, Harvey Bullock, the Penguin, and the way they're portraying Gotham City all feel right. Everything else is where, like, at first I thought that uh, Ben McKenzie was doing a great job as Gordon, but you begin to notice as the episodes goes on, go on, he starts to adopt the bad voice. And that just <laughs> completely takes me out of the show whenever he tries to do the bad voice. Well, and, and the other, and he's completely right. And that's why I've been liking the second season because it's pared down. Part of the problem was Gotham at the beginning, and a lot of people pointed this out, didn't really know what it wanted to be. And it, to- it totally did this thing where they were doing a, a crime of the week 
or they were going to have like you got Fish Mooney, you have the Penguin, then you have uh, all of the Mafia uh, guys involved. Plus, you then have a new character that will insert. So it was really, really crowded. And they kind of fixed that by the end of season one. And when season two starts, their focus is on this new threat, which is comprised of the really interesting villains that they and they kind of they've learned to balance themselves really well. Yeah, but my problem is you throw all these villains in there and it it dilutes the product because a they not I'd say 98% of them don't need to be there. They shouldn't have even sniffed at Joker at all. Because it's it's the ultimate, you know, two sides of the coin, not to make a, you know, two-faced pun, which, <laughs> the Har- which I'm sorry, that Harvey Dent was horrible. Um, it's, but because they know that that's what's going to sell the show, they throw it in there. Well, it's, it doesn't make storytelling sense for the story that you're trying to set up. By the time Bruce actually gets to the point where he's ready to put on the suit, he's going to be fighting a bunch of geriatrics. <laughs> well, kind of to the, to the point of the Joker theme. Um, this is where I get, I'm, I'm very saddened by the second season now because of this last episode. And I don't want to spoil it for Carl, but I have to talk about it a little bit because it really, a lot of people are going around, including myself, going, what the hell just happened? Well, yeah, because everybody thought Jerome was going to be the Joker, because that's what they were. And it kind of would have made sense, because in the age-wise, the Joker always seemed to me to be a little bit older than Batman. Which, he's like 18, I think. I think Jerome was like 18 years old in this. And that would have been about right, uh, if he was going to be a little bit older than Bruce. But what they did, everyone at the end, with the ending of the episode, I thought they had released some form of Smilex into the into the ether. I'm like, holy crap, was this the plan? They're going, what the hell's going on? No, it was some weird supernatural possession by the Joker of all the redheads in Gotham decided to become psychotic killers. Suddenly, no, that's just natural ginger nature. Hey, don't, 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 don't even. I knew that was coming out of your mouth. Don't even go there. But I just was, why would they go that route with it instead of, wouldn't you just kill him or something? You know, just leave this whole weird, he somehow inspired this. What? Really? We're going that route? What the hell does this mean? So I don't even, and their BS excuse of, oh, well, you know, the mythos of the Joker is more complex. Well, no, it's not really. See, the problem is like you can, you can sit and you can discuss the psyche, the personality of Batman forever with the Joker. And what's like really aggravated me about Scott Snyder's run on Batman is because we were coming out of Endgame, which he totally revamped the Joker into like this deity 
uh, spirit that's always been there. Now, so is he, is it he sounds the one... like that's what they're trying to adapt on the show, and that's not a good thing. Well, is that you know? is that the one where he? Because I heard that they were going to do a thing where they had the Joker be immortal because he utilized Raz Al Ghul's um, resurrection trick. The Lazarus no. Pit. No, yeah. he, he is. He's just kind of a sub deity who's always been there and just kind of watching and laughing. And <sighs> Did, didn't That's they try horrible. that with Spider Man and the spider totems and everything? And that didn't work, did it? No, that kind of faded away. Straczynski did that on his run in Spider Man when he kind of retooled the origin. And because it just it just didn't work, it just kind of faded away. Exactly. It like it, it pops up every now and again, but and I'm hoping that's kind of what is going to happen with this because Snyder gave us one of the all time great Joker stories in Death of the Family. Oh God, I love that so much. It was just taken to a whole new level. Like the Joker, kind of you can make the argument reached his epitome of what that character is going to be. But there's this ever since then, there's been this kind of obsession of figuring out like who the Joker is and explaining his background. And that character just doesn't need that. If you act, if you do that, in my opinion, you actually take away from the character. He's scarier to not, you know, that great line from Scream of it's scarier when there's no reason. Exactly. He's to have no reason behind his insanity other than he's insane he yeah. just is yeah i mean they, they you know say what you will about the nolan films uh, that line from the dark knight some men just want to watch the world burn and that's that's what the joker is and i think that's when you try to find a reasoning behind that and try to write an origin for whether it's what uh, Snyder tried to do in Endgame or what the writers of Gotham are trying to do, you take away from that character. Yeah. And, it, which is, and I find that a lot of what I'm seeing in Gotham is like they're trying to, like some characters in origin works, like Harvey Dent. You can go back and to that character's history and see, okay, why does this other personality come out when this tragic accident happens to him? That's fine. You can do that. A character like the Penguin, who I actually really enjoy on Gotham. I like seeing the the path that that character is taking. You know, you can go into that history and do that, but some characters like the Joker, um, you can make an argument for like, like uh, Ra's al Ghul, you just they are who they are. Well, and the uh, other was, part of that is we've had so much Joker that you haven't really had a lot of penguin mythos created on screen, which is something that's I, true. I, I yeah. like I like watching him because they've got a really great actor playing him and he does such a good job. David oh, Anders? <laughs> <laughs> that guy's everywhere. Oh <laughs> my god. <laughs> But no, no, I agree with you. I really enjoy what uh, Robin Lord Taylor is doing with that role. Um, I like, I love Donald Logue as Har- as Harvey Bullock. Like he nails that character, and it's really enjoyable to watch. The thing I think the show does best 
is they shoot in New York and manage to not make it look like New York. And it looks like Gotham. They do a really good job. Yeah, it it's looks got, dirty and yeah, it's, it feels like Gotham should feel. Which so, is dirty city gone to the epitome of dirty city. You yeah. Know. So when when I get done with all the episodes up to like the most current one, we decided we're going to kind of put Gotham on trial in an episode of Fangirl. Gotham on trial. Gotham's going on trial. Jess is going to be the defense. I'm going to be the prosecution. And Rachel's going to be the judge. (laughs) Yeah, and I don't know how good of a defense I'm going to be if they do more stupid crap like the Joker's a curse. Uh, No, just stop with that. Just no, no, no. And then they'll bring back Fish Mooney and then I'll want to jab my own eyes out with a fork. Oh, God, no. I just saw that scene. I was like, why? No, 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 just no. I mean, I know Rachel loves that character. Rachel, if you're listening, we love you. (laughs) But I'm sorry. Jada Pinkett Smith is just doing a really bad Nichelle Nichols impersonation. Mixed with a little Eartha kit. Exactly. And it's just not working at all. I love that they, like, if if you were going to do... I always said, if you're going to do a show about Gotham pre-Batman, okay, put Jim Gordon in it if you must, even though he came to Gotham after, way after the Waynes murder. He came to Gotham at the same time Bruce came back from training, as was told in the classic uh, Frank Miller tale year one. Um, But regardless, I'm sounding a little too geekish here. But like, if (laughs) you're going to... If you're good, thank you. If you're going to do a show about Gotham, I always said it should be one part Law and Order, two parts Sopranos. And you just sprinkle in for a little bit of seasoning these characters that you know down the road are going to be major characters. Like, hey, we have this crime that has some sort of like science element we haven't seen let's take it to the university oh there's a professor victor freeze we can speak to you know and it's just like little hints like that because the audience knows what that character is going to be well it seems like they thought they were trying to figure that out at the beginning of this because it really was sort of a, a a csi type of a thing and they finally realized no, that's not really what we are doing. And they tried to do a Sopranos angle with a bunch of the mafia stuff and they couldn't really find a balance. So I hope that they have figured that out with this second season because it feels a lot better. The flow is a lot better, but they can't do any more of this stupid, (laughs) stupid, I can't repeat it enough. Stupid. He's a curse upon Gotham. Yeah. It just makes no sense. Why suddenly are you allowing this weird supernatural-esque element into your show that has never had that? Yeah, but we'll we'll definitely have more on that. Good listeners, when when I finish up the series and we can do a proper trial of Gotham. I can't wait. This is going to be fun. It's so, going to be fun. But speaking of comic book television shows going from the debatably good to the 
freaking awesome. <laughs> Flash. Debut oh, night. so good. <laughs> it was Eric. Did you see it? Of course, I saw okay, it. Okay, awesome. We can get into this. How awesome was that premiere? They literally, oh. pun intended, they hit the ground running. They did. It was so fantastic. As always, that was my favorite new show of last season. Oh, yeah. uh, just nothing came close to. I, I still think it's the perfect comic book TV show. I still it's, can't believe they didn't hire him for the for the Justice League movie either. By the way, just they're two well, separate universes. Whatever. <laughs> See, here's the thing: the movies, the the theater films, that's all Warner Brothers. Television, DC has more control over that than they do the theatrical productions, which is why we're getting a much better product on television than we are in the theaters. But yeah, Flash season premiere. It was so great. Um, it picks up months after the cliffhanger. Six months, Flash, six months after you know Flash running up into the the blue time vortex, what energy vortex, whatever you want to call it. The singularity. Um, yes, to, to <laughs> science it. The singularity. Um, we find out that he has saved the city, but not without cost. Um. I think we will hold off on the cost because the episode is only a day old at the time of this recording. So, yeah, why not? We'll spoil it. Um, Firestorm <laughs> goes up into the, the vortex to help Flash, and they, they figure out that by separating their two entities, that will disperse the singularity. So they separate. Flash runs down, catches the professor, but... Ronnie is apparently killed in the explosion. So here we are six months later. Flash is feeling the weight of his first real loss since donning the costume. And he's not handling it well. And he goes, he goes in that typical sort of almost cliched direction where he, he pushes everybody away because he still wants to be the hero, but he doesn't want to put anybody in danger. He thinks it's all his responsibility. And so, you know, because of this one, well, a couple losses, uh, he's he's just pushing everyone away. So this six months that have gone by, but since the end of last season, he's he's been trying to do it all on his own. Yeah, and... I think it, and yes, in a lot of ways, I agree with you. I agree with you. It is cliche, but I also think it's part of the hero's journey. How do well, you sure, handle, I'm not saying that in a bad yeah. way. Oh, yeah, yeah. How do you handle that that loss? That for like, I think like post him donning the costume, getting his abilities, this was his first like legitimate serious loss was not being able to save Ronnie. Um, but then. We're just hit over the head with classic Golden Age DC. And it's so fantastic. Oh, yeah. The Atom Smasher shows up. And is it the Atom Smasher that you're generally accustomed to? Not necessarily. But when did you ever think that we would live in a world where we're <laughs> seeing the freaking Atom Smasher on a television show? Exactly. It's awesome. It's great. Um, so Adam Smasher shows up. There's a bunch of classics in this one. 
Oh yeah, especially especially at the end of the episode when none other than Jay Garrick, Golden Age Flash, shows up and says, "Your world is in peril." So we this is such an amazing time to be a geek because we live in a world where there's a television show that not only is the Flash, not only have they done Reverse Flash. Not only have they done Gorilla Grodd, whoever and thought Gorilla Grodd we would be on a live action We were geeking out about Gorilla show. Grodd over and over. And they mentioned they, him in this episode. I mean, they're... Yes. They're, they're nope, doing... it wasn't Grodd. Yeah, they're doing Golden Age Flash. Jay Garrick, the helmet, the costume looks right looks from everything you've seen. And it's just, it's fantastic. And this show, this episode... Um, had a moment that illustrates what I've grown to really love about this show and Arrow is that with these CW shows, the character that you're meeting in the beginning is not the character that's going to be throughout the whole series. They evolve everything. Like my main, my, a couple of my main problems with Arrow when it first started out was like the grease paint eye mask, the fact that he killed and they took that character on that journey where, you know, he came up with an actual mask that works. And he learned why he should not kill. And in this episode of Flash, we saw the classic white emblem with the lightning bolt through it. Yep. And it just felt so great to see that. Not that the red one bothered me outrageously. Like, I kind of wish it had been white from the beginning. But now that we see it, it just it's another thing that shows that these shows, people who run these shows are very smart and they're evolving these characters. Like I think this season on Green Arrow, Starling City finally becomes just Star City as it was in the comics. <laughs> and from everything I've read, this, this season we get Green Arrow. He adopts the name Green Arrow. So it's just, it's such a good time to be a geek. Awesome. Um, so I guess uh, we need to stop talking about comics. Sadly, we will have to do this. I know those words make no sense. I know, I know, I know. I got, I got comics here to review. I fine. We'll do it. Fine. Okay. We'll go. We'll very, go over. Go we'll go quickly. over. <laughs> I'll go very quickly. Um, as many of you may have heard, uh, Marvel is doing a huge relaunch again. A whole bunch of number ones coming out again. Why? Hashtag because money. Um, <laughs> and this is all fallout from Secret War, a series which is still going on because Marvel can't get anything out on time. Um, the Secret War issue six just came out this week. Um, the whole series was supposed to be done in October, but no, we've got three more issues coming. So these issues that I have here that are all pick up after Secret Wars, which isn't actually going to end till November or December. Um, way to go, Marvel. Wow. Uh, the first one here, just to shoot through these really quickly, Invincible Iron Man number one, uh, written by Brian Michael Bendez and art by... Uh, David Marquez. Uh, this is a uh, decent issue. Uh, art is fantastic. Writing Brian Michael Bendez is great. Um, there's a new Iron Man armor that's revealed in this issue. I'm not 
completely crazy about the design. I would like to see a little less red, a little more gold in it. Um, but basically, Tony has a date who is also a super genius along with him. And she, like, he asks her, what's that, you know, world-altering invention that you haven't released to the world yet because they figure they're not ready for it. And she reveals that uh, she can cure the mutant gene. So I mean, that's happening again, I suppose. Um, Madame Mask shows up and steals something from Castle Von Doom. And spoiler alert, the last page reveal is... Victor Von Doom standing in front of Tony in a three-piece suit, no armor, no cape, hood, nothing like that, face with a slight scar on it, um, but definitely not a Doctor Doom we are accustomed to. Uh, it's it's okay. Iron Man, to me, has always been a character that works better on screen uh, a lot of times they does in his own book. So if you're a fan of Iron Man, you'll enjoy it. Um, if you're, if you haven't been reading Iron Man looking for a jumping on point, this is probably as good as you're going to get. Uh, it's, it's got me a little bit curious, but maybe not curious enough to come back for issue two. Second issue. Number one I have up is Dr. Strange. Number one. Ooh. Uh, this is written by Jason Aaron and the art is done by, Oh, Marvel, why must you hide these things? Why must this come, what, 10 pages? Jeez, 10 pages in. Uh, Pencils and Colors done by Chris Bacallo, who I'm a big fan of his art. I just didn't know his first name. Uh, This is a guy who kind of made a lot of noise back in the Age of Apocalypse days with Generation Next. And this is a really solid issue. I really enjoy this. You get... This is a good introduction for someone like me who has not always read Doctor Strange, but always been interested in doing so. Um, Doctor Strange kind of is helping people in the neighborhood with their spiritual problems. Like he drives out this uh, microbiotic uh, spiritual parasite from a kid in the beginning of the book. And he meets up with a bunch of different sorcerers at a bar. Uh, midway through the book it's solid it's a lot of fun it's really great i would i'm definitely coming back for issue number two i would definitely recommend the new dr strange book which brings me to my final issue oh boy (laughs) amazing spider-man number one again (laughs) because money yeah so okay spider-man disclaimer is my all-time favorite character up loving spider-man this is definitely not a spider-man i'm accustomed to peter parker has uh back when the superior spider-man was a thing and dr octopus was was in control of his body yeah um <laughs> which i shouldn't chagrin that I, that was actually a decent series it was well written dan slot's been doing a lot of uh good things with the Spider-Verse since he came on board. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man number one sees Peter Parker in a role we are not accustomed to seeing in that, and that's a Tony Stark-like entrepreneur, uh, globe-trotting around the world with Parker Industries and their newest inventions. Um, The suit is slightly redesigned, 
with a glowing spider on the front, glowing eyes. They brought back the underarm webs, which I was always a fan of. Um, he, they're really letting the scientist aspect of the character uh, strut its legs because he now has this uh, this company that he's running that gives him the option to uh, really explore the his inventions and what he can do as a scientist. Um, he's trying to make he's not a Tony Stark person in that he is driven by profit. He is legitimately trying to make the world a better place. Uh, so the character, of Peter in this is very faithful to what you know Peter to be just in different circumstances. Like as much as I'm kind of hesitant about the story, having read this character my entire life, I'm like, I'm happy that this character has these circumstances. Now I'm happy that, you know, Peter finally has something where, you know, he's not, it's not every month he's worrying about paying the rent. You know, in, in this issue, he, st- he uh, begins the Uncle Ben Foundation, which is set up to help uh, low-income families live better lives. Um, but, so, but don't you think that kind of takes away from what people related to to the character? Because it, it sounds like what you said, that they're trying to make him kind of a, a, a good-hearted Tony Stark. Well, he literally says it himself in this issue that he's the poor man's Tony Stark. <laughs> but you see in this issue that someone if you give someone like peter resources that tony has the the legit good they can do in the world like he's he brings devices to the market that allow for uh internet access anywhere on the planet free data things like that so yeah your point is valid just that you know this is not the the Spider-Man that we're used to. This is not the down on the luck uh, Parker that we're used to, but it's still an interesting, I mean, let's be honest in comics, everything eventually reverts back to the center. Everything goes back to status quo at some point. I was going to say, if, if the fans don't like it, Peter Parker can always make a deal with Mephisto and get retconned again. Yeah. even, (laughs) Even if the fans do like it, it's going to everything reverts back to what it was at some point or another. So it's Dan Slott has done fantastic writing ever since he's come on to the amazing Spider-Man title. So even though this is a different uh, Spider-Man story than we're used to, um, because of my love of the character, I'll be sticking on this book to see what happens. Um, some spider fans may be turned off. Um, but I think it's worth a pickup and a read. It's a good hefty book. It is a five ninety nine book, but Yikes. you definitely get a huge page count in this book. I think I think his foundation for feeding the world should be called Wheat Cakes International. Nah. <laughs> Auntie May's wheat cakes. Oh. <laughs> Well, thank you, Carl, for the recap, because now I have to go get Doctor Strange number one and possibly Spider-Man, because I need to know now. I got to see what they're doing with it, even though that's expensive. If you have 
Well, it's not the the standard price. This is just a giant size issue. Yeah. So it's a giant size issue price. Uh, yeah, Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange was four ninety nine, and Iron Man was three ninety nine. If you have no like prior character allegiance, I would rank them Doctor Strange, Spider Man, and then Iron Man as far as quality of the books go. I think it's time. I I know we're gonna go over with this episode, but. It's all good stuff, so we're keeping it all, and we're going to post it all up for you. Um, but we are now going to go to our interview with the lovely and talented Miss Barbara Crampton and Ted Gagan, the director of We Are Still Here. Hey, everybody. I want to welcome to Fangirl Radio Ted Gagan and the beautiful Barbara Crampton from We Are Still Here, which is an amazing uh, ghost story movie, sort of almost like a, it made me think of some HP Lovecraftian things as well. Um, and I want to welcome you guys to uh, Fangirl Radio. I can't wait to talk to you about this film. Hi. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Ha- happy to be here. Yes. Hello. Hello. So, um, first off, um, I'm going to ask this to Ted. Um, I know you had said mm. this film was based off some Fulci work as well, but um, what really kind of inspired this film for you other than uh, like those Fulci films? Because like I said, I got a real Lovecraft vibe and, and sort of like a, a Dunwich horror almost kind of a thing where it's the town is, is mm. got a deep, dark secret. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's a strong Lovecraft influence throughout the entire film, you know, although it's not as quite on the nose as I think a a traditional Lovecraft adaptation might be. You know, we certainly don't have any, like, crazy Cthulhu cults or tentacled monsters, but some of the more subtle Lovecraft where you're just kind of examining kind of the darkness that is living underneath, you know, a quiet New England society um, very much rings true. I mean, just the fact that the film is set in New England is an ode to Lovecraft. And there, there are little references throughout the film to towns and places that are that kind of a part of the Lovecraft mythos. So, yeah, while, while the film is very, very deeply steeped in Euro horror, especially, you know, like a lot of Euro trash, as I like to call it, like, like a lot of what she did, and I say that in the most loving term imaginable, um, you know, it's, uh, it definitely, uh, takes its inspiration from a lot of things. There's, uh, there's no doubt a lot of, we'll see there's, there's kind of a sprinkling of Lovecraft and, um, you know, there's, there's plenty of crazy American horror that I grew up with. There's, there's certainly a lot of nods to, you know, the, the style and pacing and feel of like Stuart Gordon's films from the eighties. Um, it's, it's really ultimately at the end of the day, it's a love letter to all the films I grew up being inspired by and being awed by. So it's a little bit of everything. So uh, did you pursue Barbara for this because of her kind of connection to those movies? And but by the way, Barbara, you were amazing in this. You always make me cry in everything that you do when you're, mm. you, you have those striking eyes, you cry really well you, yourself in movies. But thank you. Did you pursue her for this? And and Barbara, what kind of made you want to be a part of this? Well, I uh, uh, written, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Barbara. You first. No, go ahead. No, no. You you start. You start. Oh, okay. Well, my my, my story is short, which is really just that 
while I was writing the script, I, I'd always had Barbara in mind for the role of Anne. And, you know, never quite sure if I'd ever be able to actually get her. It, it just, you know, it always helps as a writer to have someone in mind when you're writing a character. And that role was always just in my head for Barbara. And the reason being that Barbara and I had met years prior. Um, I was the publicist, one of the publicists for Your Next. And we we met and just hit it off and immediately became close friends. And uh, so it was, it was just my dream as, as I was writing this film. I thought, oh, you know, and, and Barbara will play Anne. And I just kept thinking that over and over. And it just so, it just so happened that uh, it came together. And uh, it, it yeah. actually happened. But it, but it was funny because, um, and we've told this story before, when you first sent me the script, you kind of just wanted my take on it. And I was not aware that you had me in mind for the role. You didn't reveal that piece of information to me. Reading it, I thought, oh, I could play this part. But I, you know, <laughs> at, at, at a point when somebody writes something and they just say, you know, give me your feedback on it, you, you never, you never, it, making a movie is so monumental. There's, there's just so many roadblocks that are inherently involved, you know, right up front. So you never really think things are going to get made, you know, when you, when, when you go about, you know, starting a project, I think. And, and so he sent me the script and I just said, I think it's a wonderful piece of writing and I just, I love everything about it and I think it's great. And I really didn't really even have many notes about it or anything. I just thought it was great. And, and then um, he was shopping it around and then, you know, uh, got Travis interested and then got Dark Sky interested. And then he revealed to me that, he had me in mind for that part, and I was like, "Thank God," because I know I could do it, and I'd love to do it, um, and I'd love to work with him. And you know, also he says, "You know, we became friends on your next." And I, I find this current horror community since I've kind of come back into you know working in the industry, I just feel like everybody is so much more friendly and collaborative, and I don't really remember that back in the 80s because we all made a movie and we had like little studios that were connected to you know I worked for Empire Pictures a lot and Roger Corman and so you know all those all those companies had their distribution built in and there wasn't all these film festivals and there wasn't bloggers and radio shows and social media and um you you didn't meet anybody and uh today uh you know you go to film festivals and you make friends with so many new wonderful filmmakers and actors and producers and you just meet people and you just want to work with them. So, you know, when Ted said, I really want you to play this part and, uh, you know, we'll get to be together for a month in upstate New York, freezing cold, and it's going to be awesome and work with Travis Stevens, who I'd admired for so long. I thought this, this is great. You know, you get to work with your friends and it's such a, just a wonderful close knit community. And, you know, it's just, it was just a great experience. Well, do you think that, because uh, I think it's a lot to do with the, how many, how prevalent the independent horror film market is now. It's, it's, it's definitely grown. Yeah. But also I think, like Ted said, is the fact that he is a fan that grew up loving mm -hmm. this stuff. And I think that kind of community of, of you know, these you know he's he's not much younger than me i'm not i'm not that old uh, no he, thank you. Yeah. but uh but he um we kind of all have gotten to that point in our lives where we love this stuff and and we're celebrating it and getting mm -hmm. to live the dream that we uh, that we had growing mm -hmm. up with it if i'm not 
Ted, please right. step in if, if I'm wrong. Absolutely. But, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, for me personally, it's, I mean, I, you know, I was first exposed to Barbara at far too young of an age while watching the animator <laughs> and, you know, immediately, immediately fell in love. And, uh, you know, it, and like so many of the other people in my film, you know, it's like I, you know, I first discovered the films of Larry Fessenden in the 90s and I was, I was mesmerized by, you know, his view of New York City. And, you know, I, I of course, you know, had doe eyes for Lisa Marie, you know, from Mars Attacks and Ed Wood. And so to have all of these people in my first film, you know, it's just unbelievable. You know, like it was, it was, it just, not to sound trite, but it really was like a dream come true. You know, I was, I was working with all these people who I not only had heard of, but had all been a very important part of my life, whether I knew it or not prior to this mm -hmm. moment. And, you know, it, it meant a lot to me knowing that I now actually got to be a part of their lives. So Right. And, and also, too, to the point that we're talking about, I mean, you know, you were a fan of the genre, but also you were very schooled in the genre, too, because because you knew so much. And, you you know, you've already produced, you know, something like 11 screenplays and um, you've been on a lot of sets and you've grown up voraciously watching all of these movies. And, you know, they're, they do heavily you know, so many movies that you mentioned, you know, heavily influenced this particular movie. But, you know, I, I don't think I can mention a movie that you haven't heard of. I mean, I think that's impossible. So, you know, all of your time of, you know, watching movies and, 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 you know, learning and, and being on other sets has, you know, prepared you for this moment. So I, you know, it's your first time director, but I, you know, you, you came with a lot of good foundation under your belt initially. You know, we, we felt, uh, very well taken care of in your hands. It wasn't. It wasn't the the blind captain. <laughs> no, no. It was good, just, good. It was no. You're you're awesome. Yeah. It was it was oh, a, yeah. it was really a wonderful set to work on, and you know, just really great, amazing people. And it was, uh, you know, some sets you work on, you you just feel like there's some either there's there could be some potential tension, or you know, the schedule is behind, or there's problems or issues, but I don't know. Every day was a pleasure to go to work and it was just so well organized and um, it was, everybody was good at their job and I, I just felt like a pleasure to go to work every day. It was just fun, great fun. Well, well we've, been, we've been doing this, uh, we've been doing this press circuit for like a year mm -hmm. almost and, and you still make mm -hmm. me blush all the time. <laughs> well, Aww. one thing I was going to ask, cause you mentioned the set, um, I love the way this movie was shot and I love how you made these just beautiful outside shots that just were gorgeous. They look like art artwork almost. Um, but you had the interior of the house that uh, was seemed very, you know, it seemed bigger than it than it looked almost in a, in a lot of scenes like it mm -hmm. and I just was gonna I was curious about Barbara your um experience filming in on in the house area and 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 some of the <laughs> some of the amazing gory things mm -hmm. that happen in the house and I was um yeah. I was wanting to ask Ted about um the look and how it was shooting that so you right. Barbara well, you know, I'll, you can talk, yeah, you can talk about, you know, the outside and all those beautiful static scenes that you guys filmed. Um, um, you know, for me, working in the house was, was, um, 
it, you know, you study as an actor, you study a script at home in your living room. My husband actually works with me on my lines a lot. And I talk to him about my character and, um, he's actually really helpful and um, really good at reading lines with me. And then, you know, you sort of imagine what the place is going to be like, but you have to do all your preparatory work before you even arrive on set. And, and, you know, you're with um, everybody else once, once you arrive and, and the environment that you're working in has to support what you're doing. And they, they looked long and hard for the right house. And, you know, immediately when they thought they, they said this is the house, of course they took it apart um, and uh, refurbished it and, and even built some walls and um, moved the door around. And uh, Marcella Brennan was our production designer. She did an amazing job just, you know, collecting things um, from that, late seventies period and putting it in the house and just making it feel like, you know, it's from 1979 and the clothing and everything that we had. Um, I, I think, you know, our, our costume designer did an amazing job as well. And so you just have to feel really comfortable in the environment. And um, it, it's almost like it's another character in any movie. I think your, your environment. And I think the house really supported the creepy, eerie feeling um, it was also, you know, uh, quite cold um, at that time, and so there was a feeling in the house was, you know, also cold. We didn't have a lot of um, good heating in that house, and even though the, the ghosts were, you know, had that burned feeling to them, um, the coolness of the house and how we were working made us feel, you know, kind of on edge a little bit, I think, and 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 vulnerable and. Um, you know, just not at ease, uh, and, and working in the house, you know, with, with all the other players and in our costumes and in the environment, I think, you know, they created a really nice, um, template for us to work from. So I, you know, I enjoyed going to work every morning in, uh, 17 below and, and seeing our breath as, you know, before speaking the lines and whatever, but, um, it was, uh, it, it was a wonderful house. And uh, I have fond memories of, of working in that environment. I'm still amazed yeah, that it was also, a real house. I, I didn't realize that you guys mm-hmm. filmed in the house itself. Yeah. It, uh, yes. It wasn't on a set or anything, no. Wow. Yeah, no, that was that was the actual house. And it, um, it, we built the interiors of it basically from the ground up. I mean, we had the walls. And like Barbara said, we created a few of our own. But... Ultimately, I mean, there was a family living in the house, but the, the house, while you can't quite tell on screen, is actually enormous. Um, it's mm-hmm. a gigantic labyrinthine sort of house, and the front of the house, like the, the image of the house that you see most often in the film and on the cover of the movie, is actually just the front of it. If you imagine like the top of it, like a capital letter T, there was actually this huge wing mm-hmm. that went down the back of the house that was twice as long as they, the front of the house. And we never even touched that portion of it. Um, we, we used a little bit of it for office space and whatnot. But, um, yeah, we, we kind of rebuilt everything from the ground up to suit our needs. And the family that lived there graciously stepped aside for a month, let us do whatever we want. Um I won't say the house was necessarily in disrepair, but it certainly needed upkeep. And the homeowners, again, very graciously told us, you can do whatever you want to the house. You just leave it in better shape than when you found it. And considering how mm-hmm. it was found, 
um, you know, it, it wasn't hard for us to leave it in better shape. And, um, you know, even splat, splattering the blood all over the walls and things like that, you know, those were freshly painted walls that we were splattering blood on. And all we really had to do was just clean them up. And the family came back and went, good God, this place looks incredible. You know, so, um, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was very, very fortunate. Uh, the house itself um, was built in 1859, the exact same year that the house, the script, was supposed to have been built. So when I found that out, I felt like that was one of the countless reasons why this needed yeah. to be the house. Well, um, it was a good sign. <laughs> yeah, I think it was fortuitous that it, it was the exact same age as my fictional house. And, um, you know, when when I walked around it, it, it had an almost identical layout to the house in the script. Um, and it, it just mm-hmm. it fulfilled our needs like nothing I ever could have expected. Um, you know, when we, when we stepped into the basement, you know, it was the basement from the script. You know, it was just, mm-hmm. it really surprised me as, as we wandered through it that this was the place. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, Marcella, like Barbara had mentioned, basically just came in and wallpapered everything. We put up wood paneling. We found amazing antique furniture. We found amazing antique artwork and really just kind of turned it into its own beast. Um, arguably the only issue that we really had was that the entire gigantic house was actually only heated by those two tiny little wood stoves that you see in the film. There was no other heat. So, um, not to say that we were freezing inside the house, but it was regularly quite cold. I'd say on any Mm -hmm. given day, it It wasn't 60 degrees in the house even. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I feel on the warmest days inside the house, it was in like the high 50s, you know, but... Yeah, we truthfully, we all wore thermals underneath our costumes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All day, everybody was in long mm-hmm. underwear hiding, so... Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the few scenes that we shot outside, you know, I'll, I'll speak for everybody, they, they mm. were miserable. I mean, it was... Brutal. Yeah, even even when it doesn't look that cold, like the scene in which uh, Jacob and May first arrive at the house and they, they hug mm-hmm. Ann and Paul, it, it doesn't look that uncomfortable about, but it was ungodly cold. I mean, just like, yeah. uh, you know, I'm from rural Montana, and it's the sort of cold that we get there and no one goes out, you know? So mm-hmm. day after day of shooting in that definitely wore on us, but at the same time, I, I think it really kind of fostered our whole little family you know we were all yeah we, we all kind of were the chetties we were we were trapped in that house in the middle of nowhere and we didn't mm. know anyone in town so we kind of mm-hmm. we kind of for, forged our own little family and I, I think it you know only served to make us a much tighter knit unit and uh by the end of that thing we, it was just a love fest but uh yeah <laughs> but um you know to uh to reference the, the other statement you made about the, the shots, um, you know, our director of photography was uh, Kareem Hussein, who is just an absolute brilliant visionary director of photography. And I, I petitioned very hard to uh, have him on the film. Not only is he a very dear friend of mine, but I just, I'd seen his photography in Hobo with a Shotgun and Brandon Cronenberg's Antiviral and the first season of Hannibal. Like he's, his stuff is really beautiful and it, it's very striking, and you use the term that I often use. A lot of its photography looks like a painting, like it actually looks like still life, and mm-hmm. I, I think there's something quite stunning about that, and we, we took so much footage of the house 
that when we were editing, we realized that we'd be doing this photography a disservice if we didn't include a bit more of it in the film. And so mm-hmm. we, cho- we chose to have additional establishing shots throughout the movie just to kind of drink in how incredible not only Kareem's photography was, but what our location was. And uh, a huge inspiration. At what, point, at what point in the editing process did you realize that? Because I'm curious about that, too, because all those establishing shots weren't really in the script. So what, at what point in the editing did you decide we have to use this and, 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 and infuse it in the beginning of the movie? I feel it was pretty early on. I, I think we were, mm. I mean, it was pretty early that because we were just looking at all the footage and we just, every time we'd get to one of those shots where Kareem was like laying in the snow, you know, pointing the camera at some kind of weird Dutch angle up at the house. We just see it yeah. like, oh, that's so beautiful. Like, we, we got to find a spot for that. We got to find this. So we were constantly like dog-earing footage. We'd be like, oh, don't forget that one. Don't we like marking all this stuff because we just, we felt like it all had to have a place. And ultimately, at the end, plenty of it didn't make it into the film, you know, because we just had so much. And, you know, mm-hmm. like I said, Kareem is very good at getting a lot of footage. So we, we certainly were not left wanting um, in that regard. Mm-hmm. And, I got um, to see some of that footage. <laughs> you didn't I'm, use. Sure, I'm, sure it's, I'm sure it's floating around. It's just like six minutes yeah. of Kareem pointing a camera at a house, but it's, right. it's, very, it's very soothing. So. Well, yeah, <laughs> that you mentioned he worked on Hannibal in the first season, I can totally see that because I'm a huge, huge Hannibal fan and part of that show's appeal was just, it looked like art. Everything looked like art. Mm. And that makes yeah. a lot of sense that he worked on that show. Um, so I actually have two more questions. And one, um, one I, I have to ask, how did you come up with the look of the Dagmars? Because they were beautifully decayed. I, I guess that's a good word for it. They, mm-hmm. they looked Absolutely. so yeah. good and creepy and, I loved how they, the smoke, and I liked how they almost looked like they were on fire underneath. Yeah, the the idea behind them, um, a, a lot of the conception of them came from our effects team, which is Autopsy Effects. They're based out of Tampa, Florida, and the head of Autopsy, again, is a very close friend of mine, Marcus Cook, um, who I've worked with for almost 12 years now on, on various projects. And I, I gave Marcus a, a loose idea of what I wanted, you know, in terms of this family. Uh, a big inspiration was Captain Drake and the pirate ghosts in John Carpenter's The Fog. Um, they're, they're very heavily influenced by them. But there's also just a touch of kind of the fantastic. The idea was, you know, they're this pioneer family that was burned to death. So, But I didn't want to make them look like like medical cadavers. I didn't want it to be like extremely unpleasant to look at them. So we came up with the idea, like, why don't they still have their hair? Like, even though they've been burnt, clearly that would be the first thing that would be gone. But now you see them and they, you know, the mother and daughter have this long hair and the father has this big, thick, full beard. It, it creates like an element of the fantastic without going overboard. You know, when you look at them, you go, well, something's not right about them. Like, and it's, it's mm-hmm. that they have hair. But yeah. it's, not, it's, it's not so in your face that you immediately go, well, this is unheard of. You know, it, it kind mm-hmm. of becomes its own thing. Well, they look more, and, they look more cursed that way. Yeah, absolutely. They, they, they retain some of their humanity. And, and on top of that, you know, uh, Alyssa, who plays 
to Mother Dagmar and Guy, who plays Papa Dagmar, they both, um, you know, they're both actors. They're not stunt people. They're not special effects people. You know, the idea was that even though the Dagmars have a very limited amount of screen time, they're the other family in this story. You know, like they are... They are a family that has been wronged, and in in many ways, I mean, they're more victim than villain. You know, like they're yeah. they're horribly upset about what's happened to them, and they do lash out violently because of this. But but at the end of the day, they're just like the Sachetis. They've suffered this terrible loss, and they're in this place that it's their house, but it doesn't quite feel right even to them. And so every time you see the Dagmars in the film. I want them to feel like they're characters and not like their mm-hmm. special effects. You know, like mm-hmm. by the end of the movie, when, when Anne and Paul are looking at the Dagmar family, it, there should be an emotional connection between these two families by that point. You know, it shouldn't feel like Anne and Paul are looking at a bunch of special effects. You, you realize just how sad and alone these people are as well. And it's kind of like, know, a, mir- I, I, it's kind of like a mirror. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's it's two mm-hmm. it's two lost, sad families that ultimately, you know, they've they've agreed to disagree. You know, like they're they're the Sachetis are not going to chase them out of town, and the Dagmars are not going to kill them, and that's that. You know, and whatever whatever future these two families have together is ultimately left up to the audience. But yeah, you know, I. I, I right. really feel like the, the Dagmar family, it, you know, it's a mixture of actually having real actors playing them and having a, a just an exceptional special effects team, you know, on board. That, you know, combined, you've got just, you've got characters instead of effects. Mm-hmm. Right. Well said. Well, <laughs> well done. Well, I, I think I've, I've ran out of time with you both, but I want to thank you so much for such a beautiful film. And it just, I, oh, I really, you. really enjoyed it. And I love the ending and I'm not going to spoil anything, but I really mm. love the ending. I love mm-hmm. the ambiguity and I love the final line. And that's all I'm going to say. I think oh, well, thank you. So, yeah. Right. I, I, loved, I loved the ending, too. And I, I thought that was very brave on, on Ted's part to, to choose that ending. And I, I, I admire you for that, Ted. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, the ending ultimately, you know, again, without spoiling it, I, I feel as though, mm-hmm. you know, the, the end of the film is really all about taking out of it what you bring into it. So if, if, you, if you go into that movie a positive person, I think you'll find it a happy ending. If you go into it a negative person, you might find the ending a little dark. But ultimately, like that's what I miss about some mm-hmm. of the cinema that I remember from my youth is that you know most films are speeches. You know, they talk to you and talk to you. Yeah. And it's it's nice it's nice when you have a film that feels like a conversation. And that's hopefully what what this is. See, you can you know you take what you want from it and you give it a little back and you, the viewer, actually get to contribute to the story a little bit. Hopefully it provokes a conversation. Mm-hmm. Very much like Lovecraft. Yeah, very much. It's, like, it's, it's, it's yeah. very well done. Homage to so many things. And yeah. I uh, I really loved it. So I, I was, I was just, when it starts getting, when it starts really rolling, I'm like, I, I kind of went, whoa, oh, 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 we're going, we're going to that. Okay. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> right. The surprising amount of blood in this movie <laughs> suddenly started happening. Hey, we should, we should try our best.